Hey everybody, David Herbst here. Thanks for thank you for listening to the Torch Talk uh, podcast. Uh, today I got Joe Cohn with the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Uh, Joe and I are going to talk a little bit about uh, free speech on college campuses, the work that Fire does, a little bit about his background, as well as just kind of get dig, digging into the weeds about uh, free speech and what it what the implications are and kind of what some of the uh, different dimensions in which colleges are uh, either preventing free speech or other or students are getting in each other's way. Uh, uh, preventing free speech. So thank you so much uh, for listening and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hey everybody, David Herbst here with Americans for Prosperity Montana. I'm here with Joe Cohn with uh, FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Uh, Joe's up from East Coast. Where are you from originally? I'm originally from Las Vegas, but, from Las Vegas. but I'm based in Philadelphia. Based in Philadelphia. Uh, here to talk with us about free speech on college campuses. Uh, we have a bill in the Montana legislature coming up. Uh, that fire is uh, helping us, you know, with and educating us about free speech and free speech law. And uh, Joe's on to the podcast to talk a little bit about it. Welcome to Torch Talk. Thank you so much for having me, David. Yeah. Uh, you know, fire used to call our blog post the torch, so it's really exciting to be <laughs> on uh, this format that that also uses that monitor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so at AFP we have the torch logo. Uh, we like to talk about freedom, liberty, how that impacts our lives and how that makes us better as both uh, individuals, you know, living out a principle of mutual benefit and equal rights and things like that, but also as a society, a society where people can talk and, you know, express ourselves freely. So like, tell us about your background. How'd you wind up working for FIRE and how'd you wind up, you know, doing that uh, professionally? Well, I'm very lucky to be part of FIRE staff. FIRE is a national nonpartisan nonprofit organization dedicated exclusively to fighting for the free speech and due process rights of university students and faculty. Mm. And we do that in a truly nonpartisan way Mm. where we have defended uh, people who have faced censorship on every part of the political spectrum. We've defended people with uh, unpopular views Mm. and on every side of every controversial issue you can name. So Mm. I was very lucky to get to join fire staff uh, to lead our department that deals with government relations. Mm. Uh, I had been a civil rights lawyer since graduating from law school. So it, this is a real natural fit for me. And I'm very lucky to to be in the place that I'm at. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it, it, I think, I think uh, one, when it comes to free speech as a nonpartisan issue, right, it needs to be. It can't be. So oftentimes the meme, right, the idea is that on campuses, the professors are liberal and the students are conservative, and there's always just that conflict, right? Uh, that's kind of like the mainstream narrative. But obviously, it's not always that. Obviously, sometimes it has to be, you know, other people being, you know, inappropriate in the free speech yeah. context. So could you tell us some of those stories? Well, students have been censored across the political spectrum, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, we have gone to litigation to defend students who are told they couldn't distribute literature promoting animal rights in a vegan diet. We've mm-hmm. also litigated cases where students were told they couldn't uh, promote their gun rights. And, you know, we've also had mm. cases where students were told that they couldn't distribute literature criticizing capitalism. Mm. That was at Joliet College uh, in Illinois last year. Wow. Um, so it really does span the spectrum. A lot of people have heard about cases where students were told they couldn't distribute pocket copies of the U.S. Constitution mm-hmm. because they weren't standing in the misleadingly labeled free speech zones on campus, which are really not free speech zones. They're really quarantine zones. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah, just let's dive into it. What is a free speech zone and what's the, what's the problem with them? Well, 
a free speech zone is an area set aside by a college or university where they purport to allow students to express their views. The idea originally was that governments have to figure out what rules apply in different spaces that they control. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, a governor's office is a publicly owned space, but it's not there for the public to engage in free speech. It's there for a governor to get work done. Mm -hmm. So the courts in the 60s started developing different rules for different kinds of public spaces, and that's called forum analysis. Mm -hmm. And speech zones started popping up as a place where no matter what time of day or night, you could always exercise your free speech rights. But that concept was really flipped on its head in the 80s where it became the only place students were allowed to speak their minds on their college campuses. Despite the fact the open areas of campus that are generally accessible to the public have all of the same characteristics of the sidewalks and parks that are usually the most wide open for free speech. That's interesting. So, So in my head, I'm picturing like the 1970s student protests and like students like going into the president's office and like having a sit down. So were free speech sounds like a reaction to that or something like that? Is, is that, you know, I, maybe I'm I, going too far with it. I, I think there was some motivation to kind of make sure that they could control where mm-hmm. these kind of exchanges were happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing about the example that you gave about civil disobedience is that even today, civil disobedience plays an important role in the way we think through our civil rights. Mm -hmm. But the key about civil disobedience is that it's disobedient Mm -hmm. and that the people who are engaging it believe enough in their causes that they're willing to accept the punishment Mm -hmm. for breaking rules Mm -hmm. to make a a point. A point about the rule itself, too. It it isn't protected speech and shouldn't be treated as protected speech. Mm -hmm. What we look at at FIRE when we're dealing with a situation where someone is engaging in civil disobedience is the question of whether or not punishment for civil disobedience is handed out evenly, regardless of the content of of the speech or the cause the student is advocating for. Mm. And then second, whether or not the punishment is proportional to the extent to which they broke the rules and the seriousness of it. Like being expelled for uh, a sit-in that lasts an hour mm-hmm. in an office seems pretty egregious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it, when it comes to free speech, zone, so it's the inversion of that. It's like, we're going to secure this zone. And now it's kind of being used to say, if you're not in this zone, you don't have any free speech rights. Right. And then, so, and fire has been litigating against that. Is there any other solutions to the free speech zone? I mean, obviously we've got legislation too, so, but what else, what else is there? So we do a lot more than, than litigation. Okay. We negotiate with institutions when we know that they have rules that violate students' free speech rights. Mm -hmm. So we have an entire unit that just does that. Mm -hmm. We evaluate the constitutionality of uh, university policies annually in a spotlight report on speech codes. And you could go to our website, www.thefire.org, and you can search for individual schools or schools in the state, and it will pull up the policies of individual schools. And we rate them uh, in a traffic light type of system mm-hmm. where if a, every one of a school's policies is consistent with their legal obligations, they mm-hmm. get a green light. If any one of their policies substantially infringe on free speech rights as they've been set forth by the courts, that earns a red light. Mm-hmm. And a yellow light is reserved for schools that give campus administrators tremendous amount of discretion to either use appropriately or to abuse. So you could go there and you see the and you see those ratings. So that's another way that we deal with free speech is to try to apply public pressure advise consumers in advance of what those policies are, mm-hmm. but also to use it carrot stick to reward schools that have great policies and to hopefully 
increase the pressure on the schools that have bad policies. And of course, you also mentioned legislation, which is uh, my area uh, mm-hmm. of expertise. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the education component, and I and I and the ratings are really awesome, right? Because I've met college students at Montana State University, for example, they're working on getting the uh, Chicago statement passed. And one of the major ways they're doing that is they're just using FIRE's rating system, saying we have some problems here at MSU. It's a lot better than some other schools. It's worse than others. Let's adopt the Chicago statement. They're getting lots of signatures and doing a great job. It's a, it's a great tool, and we love it when people on the ground, whether it's faculty, students, or other supporters, alumni, reach out to schools and say, we want you to prioritize our free speech mm-hmm. rights. And encouraging schools to adopt the Chicago Statement is an important way they can do that. For those of you who don't know, yeah. uh, the Chicago Statement was a document that was created by a committee at the University of Chicago, uh, led by uh, renowned First Amendment scholar uh, Jeffrey Stone. Um, and it was designed to set forth what principles of free speech should look like at an institution of higher education. Mm-hmm. Um, and FIRE actively tries to convince schools to adopt the Chicago Statement as its statement of principles. Now, I want to give one you know, caution here, which is a lot of schools have statements about how much they care about free speech, but either their policies don't live up to those commitments mm. or when the rubber hits the road and controversial speech comes to town, mm. those commitments yeah, go by the wayside. Yeah, yeah. So even the Chicago Statement itself isn't the magic bullet to solve the problems, mm-hmm. but it's a good place to start to get administrators thinking at least in principle that they're committed to these concepts. Mm-hmm. And especially for college students. If you're, on, if you're on the college university, if you are part of the student government, it's a great way. If you know it's there, if you know what your fire ranking is to start the dialogue. Uh, but that bottom up solution, we, we like to encourage that. We like to you know build that because even, even if we get a legislative solution, it's still going to require the colleges to come up with some kind of free speech policy. So what we want to do is be there and be like, this should be the one. This is the gold standard. Let's go with that one. Absolutely. And we have a lot of materials about the Chicago Statement on our website, which, again, is (laughs) www.thefire.org. Yeah. So uh, uh, other than free speech zones, because there's a lot more issues involved than just free speech zones, what other sort of issues will FIRE engage on in the campus free speech area? Well, there are a lot of different ways that students and faculty are censored on college campuses. Mm -hmm. Uh, in addition to the free speech zones, as you noted, mm. there are overbroad anti-harassment policies. Mm. You know, there's no doubt that schools are legally obligated to defend the free speech rights of their students and faculty members. At public institutions, that legal requirement comes from the First Amendment itself. Mm. At the private institutions, uh, courts have often used contract law to say that you can't promise students' free speech rights, collect their tuition dollars, and not fulfill mm-hmm. those promises. Yeah. So that, there's nothing new there. But there's also a well-established legal obligation to protect students from known instances of harassment, at least to not allow that to perpetuate once they're aware of it. Mm-hmm. And it, those two important legal goals are often uh, viewed as being intention, and they certainly can be mm-hmm. uh, if campus administrators don't take both obligation seriously. So the courts mm-hmm. have grappled over that problem and set standards and definitions of when speech crosses the line from being protected into being unprotected conduct. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. too many schools across the country don't abide by those judicial rulings and instead create uh, anti-harassment policies that are overbroad. Okay. So what would that what would that look like on the ground? So you've seen it here in Montana. In Montana mm-hmm. in 2013, the universities were ordered 
to change their harassment policy to define sexual harassment as any unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature, full end stop. Mm. You know, which so is just asking entirely to go out want to, or you know, something like that. Entirely subjective standard, yeah, and courts yeah. have had no problem over and over and over again striking university policies mm. that don't track higher standards of it mm-hmm. being objectively offensive as well, mm-hmm. severe and pervasive to an extent that it prevents the target from getting access to one of the benefits of it, uh, of the educational institution's uh, opportunities. Yeah. So, um, so there's no doubt that there's a way to do both, mm-hmm. to protect students from conduct that crosses lines while respecting students' free speech rights. And that's something that's that right. we want every school to be doing. Yeah. So how, how do we, how do we, so the distinguishment characteristic between a school that is good on harassment versus one that isn't is, you know, just how high of a bar, but obviously it does any school have too high of a bar. Is that a thing? Or is it just schools with too low of a bar where it, it, it creates some liability and some uncertainty for students? Like, I don't know how, what, what I'm, what's okay or what's not okay. I don't think I've seen policies where the written policy created too high of a bar, Mm. but we have certainly seen instances where schools ignored conduct that would have met the legal definitions and allowed students to continue to be harassed. Mm. And that's equally unacceptable. And we need to be concerned when we see that as well. Schools can't be deliberately indifferent to known acts of student-on-student harassment and expect folks to take that idly yeah. uh they shouldn't yeah it's unlawful yeah. and it's also unethical yeah yeah, of course so so I, so like harassment defined as you know unwelcome attention or that's repeated over a long period of time and severe in some way and objectively severe right. Right? and it looks like in montana if you were able to take a time machine back to 2013 yeah there were all of those allegations that football players at the university of montana yeah. were uh raping students and that when other students complained about those those rapes. The schools did nothing. Mm-hmm. The school did nothing about it. Mm-hmm. That was the whole impetus of the Department of Education and the Department of Justice intervening mm-hmm. and requiring the school to change its policy. But when we looked at their policies, the problem in Montana wasn't with what was in their written policies. Mm-hmm. It was that they weren't following uh, their policies really? at all. Oh, wow. So that if the allegations, yeah. you know, yeah. you know, were, were, were true. Mm-hmm. So these things happen Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of schools violating the law in both directions, Mm -hmm. infringing on, on, on students' free speech rights by applying over broad harassment codes, but also sometimes ignoring harassment. So the right answer is to use the court's definitions and to hold them accountable when they don't follow up. Mm. So uh, finding the right balance on harassment, ending free speech zones, right? Obviously with the free speech zones, there's gotta be some kind of like, you can't do things here. Like, yeah, obstructing traffic or something like that, but basically getting rid of those, or is there something else there? No. I mean, yeah. Well, what's interesting about just yeah. to broaden that topic a little bit, yeah. the courts have talked about what kind of rules can apply in open outdoor areas, mm-hmm. and they say that they're allowed to have reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions so long as they're published, viewpoint, and content neutral, mm-hmm. and that those rules are narrowly tailored and connected to accomplishing a significant interest okay. of the institution. So yeah, you can yeah. envision a rule at an institution that says you can't use amplified sound outside of the library because it has to be quiet. And yeah. that would usually satisfy that test. Mm. You can envision a rule that says, you know, you can't have demonstrations outside of the dorms after 10 PM. Mm. Yeah. Know, yeah. And, 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 and 
that would also pass that same test. Mm. What you can't do is say, because we need it to be quiet outside of the library, you can only exercise your free speech rights in one spot and it's you know, nine blocks away because that goal doesn't explain why people can't express themselves eight blocks away or seven blocks away or five blocks away or why they can't distribute literature, which is a silent activity, even immediately outside of the library. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what we're trying to get at with the legislation is to repeat what the courts have said uh, with respect to the kind of rules schools are allowed to adopt uh, while prohibiting the kinds of rules that they strike over and over and over again. Mm. And I think that's uh, uh, something that we could do in Montana that would be very helpful. Uh, there are free speech zones in the state of Montana, and it's time to get, it's time to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. You know, there are other things, other forms of censorship. You, know, you have times in which schools try to apply uh, security fees on student groups who want to bring a speaker because the speaker is controversial, and mm-hmm. they think that people who hate the speaker will create such a mess in their reaction and their criticisms that they'll need extra security. And the courts over the years, not just in the college context, have recognized that governments can't charge security fees based on a potential hostile reaction to a speaker's critics, Mm -hmm. because then if you wanted to prevent someone from speaking, all you need to do is make as big a stink (laughs) as possible. And our laws can't encourage people to stifle other points of view. Mm -hmm. So, but schools do that far too often. Mm. Uh, So, so that's another thing that we look at. Mm. There are really endlessly creative ways that schools can censor and that they have censored and, Mm. you know, and, and we uh, never tire uh, in, (laughs) in our, in, in, in figuring out what we need to do uh, to defeat that kind of censorship. So one of the interesting situations that got brought to us from a young Americans for Liberty chapter was a student uh, wanted to hang up a flag. Uh, it was actually a scarf, a tie-dye scarf with Bob Marley on it at his dorm. And he just thought it was just decorating his room. But it was a controversial, apparently, to certain people and perhaps offensive. And it became like a real big deal. Other students have, have said, you know, hey, I just want to hang up my Hillary flag or my Trump flag or something like that on a dorm. And that free expression is, if it's if anyone disagrees with it, is being stifled. Is that... Is there a role for legislation or, you know, a lawsuit there? Or is that is that just kind of within the bounds of dorm life? And- well, I think it really depends on the location. Mm. Courts have allowed there to be broader rules in indoor spaces, more restrictions in indoor spaces than in outdoor spaces. Mm-hmm. So long as those rules are consistent. Mm. And that means that they couldn't decide that. Hillary posters were okay, but Trump posters were not. Mm-hmm. That Bob Marley scarves were bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Uh, Britney Spears scarves were wonderful. It was a good reference from uh, the 90s, maybe late, <laughs> early 2000s. Well, for those of you who prefer other uh, examples. Uh, Kanye. 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 Kanye well, wait, scarves, that's, that's like 2010. Kanye scarves, uh, you know, will, we'll, you know, sure. work. You, know, you, you name it, we can come up with, yeah. with, with others. For you older viewers here, Elvis scarves. Um, so, the, the, so, yeah, so that kind of free expression. So the, the difference between speech and expression and is there a how do you draw the line there how do you i mean like what is the what is the difference as far as fire is concerned with you know i want to protest in a certain way and that's my expressive protest i'm not actually saying anything but i want to well there isn't really much of a legal distinction between speech and expression they're often used uh, you know synonymously but there is a Mm -hmm. distinction that's important uh between speech that's protected and speech that isn't protected Mm -hmm. so 
you know, you have the right to engage in protest. And you also have robust rights to counter protest views that you don't like. Mm -hmm. And the tensions arise when people think that they're allowed to stop someone else from expressing their points of view. And courts mm -hmm. call that the heckler's veto. And that's not allowed. So if you knew that there was a controversial speaker coming to your campus whose views you loathe, you could respond to it in any number of ways. You can mm -hmm. choose to ignore it. Um, you could choose to attend and 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 pose difficult questions to the speaker if there's public uh, Q&A time. Mm -hmm. Or you can choose to protest. But if you're going to protest, you should do it in a way that doesn't substantially and materially disrupt someone else's event. And that's particularly important in spaces that have been reserved for a particular event. You don't have mm -hmm. the right to stop someone's speech from proceeding. If you want to be outside and protest, um, that's great. That is part of what the freedom of speech entails. Mm -hmm. I, in my head, I'm thinking like the group that was, is outside the door banging the cowbell and spraying the air horn in so that people inside can't enjoy the event. Is that, is that kind of what you it, have in mind? It is or? always going to be a very fact-specific analysis yeah. of how disruptive uh, the activity Versus is. Versus like chaining to yourself to the door so right. they can't get in. You know, yeah. Actively preventing people from getting in sure. is a clear no-no. Being yeah. inside the event and, and creating a disruption so the event can't proceed is also obviously uh, unprotected conduct. Mm. You get closer to the to, to the line. You're talking about a disruption that lasts for thirty or forty seconds, yeah. and then stops, or even two or three minutes, and and stops. And reasonable minds can disagree on exactly where mm -hmm. it crosses that line. But you want people to be analyzing it under a, under a, a framework of does it really create a substantial material disruption to the event, or was the event able to proceed? Mm -hmm. it, the question isn't whether or not the people are doing that disruption from inside or outside. As you pointed out, if you're chaining yourself to the outside of the door to prevent people from getting in, you're technically standing outside, mm. but it's having that impact on the event itself. If your noise is so loud mm. that the event can't proceed, mm -hmm. um, then then that also counts as a heckler's veto. Mm. Uh, but you know, people have to be very careful in that analysis because you don't want to dissuade students from engaging in any of the kind of robust you know protests that are at the heart of the First Amendment. That's right, yeah, because you want a dialogue. You want, if, someone's, if something's happening, to so be able to comment on it, be able to protest it, something like that. You just want to be able to do so in such a way that it doesn't, that it can happen again afterwards. You don't want to do it so they can't happen again. Right. Yeah. So, um, so we got free speech zones, harassment policies, uh, policies around uh, the uh, use of security fees. Uh, what else? Well, we've seen cases as wild as a, a case out of, uh, Northern Michigan, where a school adopted a policy telling students that if they had suicidal feelings, that they could be punished, including suspended or expelled if they communicated their suicidal feelings to any other classmates. And it's, wow. and it's amazing. It's stunning that someone thought that was a good idea. But their theory was that the student friend who is hearing about, uh, you know, for example, their roommate's uh, you know, negative thoughts, you know, <laughs> thoughts of self-harm yeah. might not be able to deal with that pressure, not know how to deal with it properly. And that, you know, depression might spread. And, and what's so uh, serious about that is that most folks inherently recognize that when you are having 
those kind of dark thoughts, that's perhaps the time you most need to be able to talk to a friend. Yeah. So if you were a student at University of Michigan back, I believe, in 2017 when that policy was in place, it had grave consequences on the actual lives and safety of you and your friends. Mm. Uh, luckily, the university backed down, uh, but not before they had sent emails to tons of students who had gone to get help out of their counseling service clinics. That, by the way, warning, you don't talk about hmm. these things to your wow. classmates. That's so we are always surprised at the new ways that schools have come up uh, to censor students. And I hope you know, that example to me shows two things. One is that censorship is not always partisanly driven. It's not mm-hmm. always about targeting someone for their political views. Mm-hmm. It's broader than that often. Uh, same thing with the overbroad application of harassment policies. That's usually not about a person's politics, mm. but have very serious uh, consequences. Mm-hmm. But the other thing it demonstrates, which I think is equally important, is that there's a lot of talk about whether or not we have a campus free speech crisis. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't think that we're in crisis, I don't think it's a crisis. I think it's a serious problem, but not a crisis. Mm. Uh, the example from Northern Michigan demonstrates how serious the consequences are when we allow any censorship to proceed. Mm-hmm. We don't know how it harms people mm. when ideas are kept out of our quintessential marketplace. Yeah. So, so the thing I've heard is uh, in the past – and this is probably still happening too, but the in the past, the biggest problem was administrators telling students who they could be with in a student group or, you know, what the rules were, free speech zones, stuff like that. But in the most recent iteration, the thing that I think most, a lot of people are thinking of when they're thinking the crisis or the problem on campuses is students trying to shut down other students' free speech. How do you, how do you splice those two? And do you see that same pattern or do you find well, it's just going to either? Both forms of censorship are alive and kicking on uh, college campuses in 2019. Mm. Uh, FIRE is still overwhelmingly concerned about censorship that comes from the university administrators themselves. Mm. But we have noticed an increased trend of students calling upon administrators to silence their fellow students with whom they disagree. Mm. Uh, and that's unfortunate because in the past, students have always been the best constituency group for fire in defense of free speech. And mm-hmm. that's starting to wane in some in some pockets, both on the left and the right, where we're seeing attempts to stifle uh, political, political opponents. Mm-hmm. What I would say is legislative solutions, I think, are best aimed at addressing the administrative censorship. Mm-hmm. And at the, at the end of the day, administrators have to decide whether or not they're going to go along with the students who are calling upon them to engage in censorship on their behalf, Mm -hmm. whether or not they're going to tell them we can't and won't do that because we value free speech. Mm -hmm. So the buck does stop often with the campus administrators. Mm -hmm. With respect to the students, we have a real challenge in front of us in terms of connecting with students of all different politics so that they can understand how robust free speech protections benefit everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, It's I've rarely seen in history someone who was unhappy with the status quo who benefited from giving government the power to st- to stifle critics. Yeah, that's right. And that ultimately is at the end of the day what you're talking about yeah. when you're talking about in a public institution, yeah. whether or not a power from above the institution mm. is allowed to silence someone. Mm-hmm. 
And that's what we're working to fight against. And it also because of that totalitarian impulse, that thing of like, man, that's a bad idea. So I want to shut it down and stop it from happening. Well, it's like both the policy problem, but it's also a cultural problem. Like we have to cultivate individuals broadly in society that are unwilling to touch that, you know, unwilling to say like, even though I don't like that, I still want to allow that to exist. I'll speak against it, but I don't want to try to squash it, even though I think it's a bad idea or a dangerous idea. We have a lot of work to do to foster a broader and healthier respect Mm. for free speech rights. And and I think that we need to start working on that well before people get to college. We need to be working at that in a younger age. Mm. But institutions of K-12 are renowned for how much censorship happens there. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, so it's going to be a tough task mm. to promote a culture of respecting free speech at the younger ages when we're mm-hmm. doing so much censorship uh, to students in that in, in the context that they mm. experience in their youth. Yeah. So so that's that's a challenge that we're going to have to to, to tackle uh, dead on at some point. I mean, like, and it's it's such a it's a difficult problem, right? I mean, like the legislative solution is something where we could we could look at the statute and say, like, hey, let's change this thing. But cultural problems are so much softer and harder harder to just change with, you know, the right amount of votes or the right amount of political power or political pressure. Uh, you know, one cultural yeah. thing that we could do. What's that? And this is all of us. Yeah. We can be more charitable about our political opponents. That's right. We yeah. can start, you know, you should. we should start engaging people, the smartest people we know who we disagree with. Mm. You don't have to argue with everyone who ever disagrees with you and listen to them <laughs> out. There are some folks that, you know, you'll find, you know aren't really open to dialogue and just want to talk at you. Mm -hmm. Uh, But by seeking out the people on the other side of our political aisle Mm -hmm. with whom we at least trust the quality of their intellect and hearing what they have to say, that's Mm -hmm. that's the first step we can do as a society to start listening Mm -hmm. uh, to each other. But the second thing that we can start doing is we can get as upset when we see censorship perpetuated by by people we agree with Mm -hmm. as we do when people... Uh, who we agree with are the victims of censorship. Mm. That's really the key. You need to stand up when you see people from your own political party doing the censorship and say, no, that doesn't respect, uh, represent my point of view. We need to listen to each other. Yeah. And until we start doing that more often and more consistently, we're not doing our free speech advocacy right as a society. That could not have been said better. In fact, I almost want to end the podcast there, but we, we didn't we didn't catch everything. So I want to keep going a little bit longer. There we go. Yeah, let's see what we're going. We're at, oh man, we're at 30 minutes already. See that? That was almost a dead stop. But hey, so just a little bit farther, just because I know people are going to want to know, you know, how'd you wind up in this position? I mean, you said you got a great job. How'd you wind up getting this job? Like, what's your background? How'd you, how'd well, you get there? you know, uh, I've always been interested in civil rights law. Uh, growing up as a kid, I really wanted to be a power forward in the NBA, and that didn't really work out. <laughs> so uh, I, I got very uh, lucky that you know that 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 you know I, I went to law school with an eye towards doing civil rights law. Uh, did a number of uh, civil rights different jobs over over the years. I worked at the AIDS Law Project of Pennsylvania, representing people with HIV and AIDS and housing discrimination cases. Mm. Uh, uh, worked at the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, largely writing uh, opinions on immigration, asylum, and, pri- and prisoner abuse and prisoner civil rights cases. Uh, taught briefly at the University of Pennsylvania in their uh, law clinic, teaching law students and supervising them as they handled their first cases in federal court. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, was lucky enough to be uh, 
briefly the legal directors of ACLU affiliates in Nevada and Utah. Mm. And when the opportunity came to launch FIRE's government relations department in 2012, it was too attractive to pass up because mm. it really got to marry my two uh, interests in free speech uh, and government advocacy. So mm. I'm very blessed to be where I am. And I'm also very blessed to have such rich and diverse allies in, in our fight. Mm, absolutely. And coming all the way to Montana, you've been Utah. Where else? Uh, you've, you've worked in Utah. Worked in Utah, Nevada. Nevada, deep uh, in the South too, right? Mis- Missouri at I, one point? I, I, I didn't work in Missouri, but uh, we got a bill passed in Missouri. Oh, okay. Got it. Um, which, I, which I believe is what you're alluding to. Yeah. FIRE's work brings me to many all states all over the place yeah. in all of the state legislatures. Yeah. And uh, this year, we've been fortunate enough to uh, get bills passed in South Dakota. Mm. Um, and a bill is sitting on the governor's desk in Kentucky as we speak right. um, that we worked on uh, to get rid of uh, free speech zones. Is he going to sign it? You think? Uh, I, I think so. It's we don't count chickens before they hatch, but okay. I would be surprised if it wasn't signed. Okay. And uh, hopefully we can bring those kind of results, uh, contribute to that at least here in Montana too. That's, wonderful. That's great. Well, uh, no, no weather. You got out here. It was good. You, you didn't come out here while it was cold. Uh, it's been sunny for you out here. I'm glad. Don't hate to, when people come up and it's just awful and experience the negative 20 that we had about a week ago. It's been truly a pleasure to be here now, <laughs> and we look forward to to coming back. Good, good. Yeah, so and uh, we got a bill coming up soon uh, called the Forum Act, uh, which will address a lot of those points, everything from the free speech zones uh, to, you know, creating some accountability between colleges and uh, the legislature on their free on their uh, free speech policies. And of course, we have, you know, this is a this is a major issue with a lot of more you know dynamics to it, both in the free speech on campus, as well as free speech in other areas. Uh, that we're going to be engaging in here tonight with the Capitol briefing. So uh, I want to encourage you as, you, as you're watching or listening to this, we have an iVolunteer where you can send a message to your legislators uh, telling them about what you think on uh, free speech on college campuses. Uh, today, I've been talking with Joe Cohn with uh, FIRE. And uh, just thank you for coming on Touch Talk and, and talking with us. Thank you so much for having me, David. And thank you for listening to the podcast. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. And one more thing. Uh, thefire.org. And do you have like a Twitter or something like that they can follow you at? Yeah. Joe at the fire. Joe at the fire. All right. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for listening.